I want to thank the church first and foremost for letting me preach one more time before we all enter into the next chapter of whatever it is the Lord has for us. Uh, probably goes without saying, but if I've proven anything in three years, I like to say the things that don't need to be said sometimes. Uh, if you came for fireworks, you're not going to get them. We're going to preach the Lord's Word. Uh, if you're looking for drama, there's plenty of other denominational institutions down the road, and there's still time. But open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we get our text. And the title of the message is, To Be Continued. To Be Continued. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we contemplate this text and what it has for us this day, help us, Father, to see the emphasis on the fact that the work continues, that the very idea of to be continued is uh, not something of dread, but something of eager anticipation. What comes next? What lies around the next corner? What opportunities, what thrills might be waiting us in the next chapter? We ask, Father, that you reveal yourself to us today, especially to those that are lost, that they might finally have hope. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We talked last Sunday about, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? And of course, that is a hymn. But so is Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Praise him. Praise him. Another hymn. And praise God, Jesus does save. We see in our text that he's the author and finisher of our faith. He doesn't begin and leave us. He begins and keeps us. He begins and grows us. He begins and sees us into maturity. And he begins and sees us all the way through to graduation day when we once and finally step into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how wonderful is this Lord Jesus Christ. This is what our commission is all about, is it not? Praising Jesus, praising Jesus, shouting out that he is worthy of praise, shouting out that his love is good and that we know his love. Those who are born again, that's literally what that term means, that we know his love. If you're here and you're born again, you know his love. You have every reason to rejoice. He's overcome the world, and we can have joy as a result shouting from the rooftops over social medias and blogs and break rooms and from the street corners, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Why? Jesus, as it says in our text, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And we as targets of God's affection, we are that joy. What a wonderful thing to consider that our text says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, I know we didn't get that far in our study of the Lord's ministry, but those of you who've heard about the, that Passion Week or that week of the crucifixion uh, most likely are aware that there wasn't a whole lot of joy spread before him. That, In fact, the disciples deserted him at that point. John's the only one who stuck close by. Simon Peter followed, but followed from afar off and, and denied the Lord three times in that same hour. And those are two of the three inner circle members of the disciples or of the church. What joy was spread before him? What is this in reference to? 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Was there joy in the shame? Of course not. It says he despised the shame. And he even makes reference to being set down at the right hand of the throne of God, and certainly that's a joyful thing, but it's written in such a way that that's not the joyful thing for which he endured the cross. So what did he endure the cross for, and what is this joy? That's us. Backstabbing little filthy liars that we are, that's us. We are the joy that was set before him. Could you imagine? You know, my, my birthday's in a month. I like to remind people of that whenever I can. My birthday is in a month. And if you brought me moldy bread and uh, an omelet with eggshells in it and scorpions and the like and said, well, happy birthday, I, I'm not sure what I would endure because I wouldn't see a whole lot of joy spread before me. But our righteousness being as filthy menstrual rags, what joy were we when we were spread before him? Did he not take us and forgive us while we were yet his enemy? While we were yet sinners, repeated over and over again through Romans, and we've seen this a lot in our studies in the last couple of weeks. We were the joy set before him, but we weren't the joy that maybe we would define the word joy to be. We were an investment of the Lord Jesus as our author, and he'd already seen through the annals of time, because he's outside of time, he had already seen what he was going to finish in our faith. And he was joyed by it. Oh, that we might consider the, the four verses that follow this one. Look again to Hebrews 12, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. If you thought you were almost saved without him and he put you over the top, this verse kind of undoes that. We were a contradiction to him. We were filthy and riddled with sin. We had not changed much from what we saw in Genesis 6, for our evil imaginations only continued to be evil throughout that entire time. We were a great contradiction against himself. Yet he endured us. It says, Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This might seem kind of ironic. Most of us probably know Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And most of us likely have heard Hebrews 12, 3 through 6. Did you know that they were right up against one another in this book? Did you know that he goes from talking about that joy that was set before him, that he still endured the cross, right into talking about us not uh, flaking away from chastening? You see, he was the author there at the cross. And, and this is just a moment in time. We understand that he saw us before the foundation of the world and all the like. But he was the author and immediately talks about the refining that will lead us to the finished product. We are God's workmanship and coming out of the box, we are imperfect because we fell with Adam. But we must be perfected because the corruptible must put on incorruption, right? And the mortal must put on immortality. For us to have access to God, we are required to have those things. We are required to be something different than we are because this is a sinful vessel. And it is not permitted into the kingdom. Which is why one day either this body will be translated, which isn't likely, or this body will stay here and it will remain in the ground while God takes that which is most precious, 
that which was being harvested in this cocoon, that which was being perfected through chastising, through study, through heartbreak, through joy, and he brings it home. What a wonderful picture. To be continued, this isn't the end of it. We think of Steve and his Parkinson's. We think of Chris when he had his cancer. And that wasn't the end of their story. That wasn't the end of their journey. And this won't be the end of ours either. This next chapter, this next section of, of life, for lack of better terms, the beginning of eternal life, but the, the transition from mortal flesh life to eternity, soul life, is so different than what we've known. Are you too weary to continue this day? Are you tired from the struggles of this life? Paul, Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 4 that every visible struggle of this life is temporary. He points out that none of those struggles are enough to remove you from Christ Jesus. So now we have the beginning where he endures because of the joy that he sees in us, that he sees himself perfecting in us. And then we also see that we can also endure because there's nothing here that will take him away from us. Consider this sacrifice that started with Christ on the cross, despising not the, and despise not the chastening of the Lord. He did not despise our wickedness. He did not despise how much he was going to have to work on us. He called it joy. And in the very next set of verses, it calls for us to endure. It calls for us to endure and despise not his chastening. Why? He's perfecting us. Despise not the hard times that lie between here and the final product because he is perfecting us. In a lot of ways, I, I cherish the time that I spend in a, in a screw machine shop and working at Honda because you get to see the, the rough material, the raw material come in as sheets or blocks of metal or plastic, mostly plastic these days. Sorry, Laramie. Uh, and then you see that final product. And man, she's beautiful coming off that line or coming out the other end of the screw machine or coming out of the press. She's something of functionality now. She can do something. She can withhold and she can give and she can hold up and she can do all these things. But before, she was just a flat piece of plastic or flat piece of metal. But a worker had to come and work her over, had to mold her, had to heat her up to the right temperature so that a hole could be punched or something could be molded. And as we have those types of experiences in life where we see raw material become something of value, where we see data become information, so I'm speaking to the computer guys in the room too, because raw data is useless, but actual data that has a use is information. And it's incredibly valuable, but it had to be made so. There had to be some reason for its existence. There's only two points to this Sunday school lesson. And this Sunday school lesson, because it's more of a sermon, is going to probably be louder than most Sunday school lessons. The first point is his work in us continues. And our second point, our work for him is also to continue. His work in us continues. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, and this is what's being referenced there. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. So when he is correcting us, when he is seeing us through trials, he is showing his love toward us. He is showing that he has not forsaken us. We would probably not be as sure that we were not forsaken if we never experience another trial again, right? Had the three Hebrew children 
never stood against the, the sounds of the psaltery, the trumpet, and so on and so on and so on, and never gone through the furnace. The king would have never seen the fourth man, but neither would they. They know who they believed, and they are persuaded, of course, but would they have had the experience of going through the fiery furnace, turned all the way to 11, and not being charbroiled even a little bit, not even smelling like smoke? Y'all ever put a, I mean, Memorial Day was last weekend. Did you ever put a hot dog on the grill? And even if you pulled it out real quick, notice that it smells like smoke. It looks like it had been burned. Not these three Hebrew children. In the furnace, they found the love of God proven upon them, proven in them. And those who bore witness saw that fourth man. Those who bore witness saw the work of the Lord continued on them. May it be so for us. Suffering in the life of a Christian is not punishment. It is chastening. And some will say, well, that's the same thing. Chastening doesn't feel good. Chastening isn't appreciated. Chastening ought to be appreciated. Chastening ought to be very highly valued. If you're here and claim to be born again and you've never been chastened, you're not likely to be born again. Because you weren't perfect. You've never been perfect. None of us in this life will ever be sinlessly perfect. So if you've never been perfect and you were born again, you require chastening because you are not holy. You're not there yet. It's a calling for us to be busy about the Father's work. Whatever it is you're struggling with, take a good look at how you got there. Were you doing the work of the Lord as you landed there? Were you obedient in attendance to your local church? Were you even a member of the local church? Then it's likely the Lord is trying to get you somewhere. I say trying loosely as a man because what he tries to do, he succeeds to do. Uh, he doesn't change, therefore he doesn't have backup plans. So you understand that what he's leading you to do is likely to correct some things that you have done incorrectly. Even from a bed of cancer, the gospel can be proclaimed by a believer. What is our excuse this morning for not following through the work the Lord has called us unto? Paul wrote in Philippians 4 verse 13, another very familiar verse, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. But what do we see in 2023? We don't see Christians that can't. We see Christians that won't. I won't do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Because you can't change the last part. He still strengthens you. He's still good. But in 2023, on a broad spectrum, from one coast to the other, at least here in America, we see Christians that won't. They say, it's too hard. They're too mean. They're too loud. How many Baptist preachers have stood in pulpits and said, America is lost. Maybe she is. But God is not lost. Why should we try? We've lost this land. Quitter. Quitter. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, you can go ahead and try, but you might perish. If I perish, I perish. But we should endure for the joy he saw in us. We should endure chastening. We should endure persecution. Because he's overcome this world. He's overcome anything that they can throw at us. So don't look at Philippians 4.13 and think, what a great motivational speech. What a great encouragement. Because if you're starting the verse with, I won't, it's not going to do much for you. We should note that the word chastening from Hebrews 12.5 is speaking in regards of child training or even discipline. It's the stuff you don't want it to be. 
Uh, I remember when you were little, reaching for some candy, getting smacked in the back of the hand. I got smacked in the rear, probably more than the back of the hand. But, uh, and I was always reaching for things I shouldn't have. It was my problem. That's chastening. That's child training. What do we do now as far as child training? It's very different, isn't it? I tell you right now, if my mother handed me a cellular device instead of smacking me on the hand, I would still have grabbed the candy. But now I have a cellular device. That's not discipline. That's not correction. That's not child training. And that's a different sermon for another time, perhaps. But just so you know, God doesn't work that way. He's not going to hand you a Blu-ray player when you get out of line to get you to be quiet. And quite frankly, you crying and screaming under his chastening is not going to change his chastening at all. We learn in the flesh how to work mom and dad's buttons. And you new parents, you're learning that those kids figure that out real early. Real early. But God doesn't work that way. And he's not really called for us to work that way. We play one another old against young and young against old, but God doesn't play at all. God simply is the author and simply is the finisher. And that's it. Our great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not that soft mom that pacifies the crying baby in the grocery store. He stands at the right hand of God while he watches Deacon Stephen stand for the truth and deliver, quite frankly, the greatest sermon that I think I've ever read, aside from what the Lord Jesus himself has delivered in this book. Well, why did he stand? Why didn't he go in? Why didn't he pacify? Why didn't he tell everyone, calm down, everybody? Kumbaya, me, kumbaya, because that's not the Lord Jesus. He gave a commandment to Stephen. He gave a commandment to Christianity. And as he saw it delivered, he stood in honor of what? God the Father, not Stephen. In honor of God the Father's will being done, he stood ready to receive Stephen. Stephen wasn't being chastened. Stephen was being used. Stephen was working. Stephen was believing, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. There is a difference between chastening and what we're just uncomfortable with. There is a difference between chastening and what we just don't like. Isaac doesn't like tomatoes. That's not a chastening that God created tomatoes. He just doesn't like them. He doesn't like strawberries either. That's a little more weird than tomatoes, just for the record. But it's not chastening that they exist. He just doesn't like them. We don't like going out and talking to people about the gospel. It's uncomfortable. The chastening is what God will do to us to get us there. The chastening is not him asking us to do it, because he didn't ask. He commanded. The commission is not a request. The commission is his commandment. It is his will for us to do. If, if your loved one was to die in the reading of their will, their last and dying requests were made aloud, would you honor it? Because the Lord came back and read his own will. And he gave us a commandment. If we are to be measured in the fullness of Christ, and we are, according to Ephesians 4.13, which we'll read in a minute, then we are to be taught and corrected, for we have been found in a filthy rag state. As we have read in Romans 6, that's our righteousness. Consider Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Nobody's going to want to hear it, but what it's saying there, what Paul is writing to the Ephesians, is that we have to grow up. Is that not true? Is there anything more sad than seeing an adult baby, an adult acting like a child? And I'm sorry, y'all, the millennials didn't create that. It's happened for generations. What we read in Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 16, is that we are measured against Christ, and if we're not there, then just like John writes, we are little children. We are little children that must first feed off of milk and then meat, but we must feed we must grow because as children we are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In every man's eyes, he is right. Ladies, it's true of you as well. In our own eyes, we are satisfied. In our own eyes, everything is justified. In our own eyes, we know how hard we had to tug on our bootstraps to get where we are. But in God's eyes, the eyes for which we are measured and measured against Christ Jesus, we are called to grow up. We are called for tough times. Christians are literally harvested in tough times. So we got to get away from the idea that it's about to get real easy. It's not. Since the Lord went home, since the Lord's ascension, since the powerful promise in Acts 1-8 of the comforter that was to come, he had a purpose. And what was the comforter's purpose? There's a hint there. It was to comfort. Why? Tough times. Tough times. The, the first church had tough times, and she spread all over the map. And every single time tough times have happened, Christian's faith is harvested. It's tested. It's proven. There's not going to be easy times ahead. There's literally no news channel you can watch is going to tell you it's about to get better. It's not. Now, one day we will be raptured, and that will be a glorious day, and that will be the best day, and it won't get better than that day because that's the beginning of all eternity. But as long as we're here, you're still going to get a splinter. You're still going to get a tick bite. You're still going to run into spiders, brother. There's still going to be horrific snakes here in this state. But men are going to be liars. And men are still going to be cheaters. And men are still going to be deceitful. And men are still going to seek to use you. Think of the study we just finished in Jude. A study we started, I believe, in December or January. And Jude was warning... And beloved, it wasn't a warning for the Christians of 100 A.D. and then expired. It was a warning for us even of trials without and trials within, deceit without and deceit within. He gave us examples such as Korah. Korah was let out of Egypt 
And all those that agreed and sided with Korah, they were led out of Egypt. We get all caught up with why would the Lord allow Judas Iscariot to be around? He allowed Korah to be around too. There's a lot of things the Lord allowed so that we might grow up, so that we might pay attention. We are not to be like them. We are to be like him. We are not to be like our forefathers. We are to be like him. And if our forefathers walked in the light, we will find a lot of similarities in our walk. If they did not, we won't. Based on the verse from Philippians 4.13, which we read earlier, we understand that all things that we have been called unto by God are made possible continually by the grace of God. Our second and final point, our work for Him is to continue. Christians, we have cornered the market on, woe is me. Woe is me. Times are hard. Woe is me. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Woe is me. He didn't extend it. He didn't change it. He's still coming back exactly when he said he would. So what has happened? It's your endurance. It's your endurance. If we all set out to run a marathon, we would train to prepare our endurance to do something we don't do every day. We would prepare our bodies and, and I don't know if you've ever prepared for a race. Isaac and I used to. I know you can't tell by looking at me. You have to prepare your mind as well. Because your mind is going to immediately, uh, about a mile in, say, the body's done, man. We got we to gotta wrap it up. We got to look for a water cooler and a chocolate chip cookie and be done. That's what we came for. Let's just go to that. The mind has to be disciplined. It has to be instructed. The body has to learn that it answers to the mind that we'll keep moving, that we'll keep pressing forward. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10-11, through 11, listen to this, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. Well, wait a minute. He said, after ye have suffered a while. That means he knows, right? That means he knows there's not a perfection here, there's not an easy here. But after we have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is an unsettled Christian like? They're a superstitious lot. An unsettled Christian believes that at every turn is judgment. At every turn is a great wickedness. That at every turn there's an immediate downfall. An unsettled Christian struggles with forgiveness an unsettled Christian struggles with grace. Oh, they believe it. They know what TULIP stands for. But they also believe that if we break it, i got to be careful because we immediately run into, well, then they're an Armenian. Well, we're not Calvinists either. But we have some Armenian tendencies in our unsettledness. We can be settled in the grace of God. We can be settled in the forgiveness of God because he doesn't change, Right? He's immutable. Therefore, we can trust in it. And therefore, we can continue to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive because we were forgiven. How many times should I forgive one who's wronged me? Seven times? Seven and seven and seven and seven. Well, we struggle with this because we're unsettled. How could it be so easy? Are you really saved? Is your calling and election sure? Because that was pretty easy for us. He did all the work. 
Now, the walk after is a challenge because we're not born that way. But what do we see? In the verses that lead up to what Peter writes in verses 10 through 11, we see in verse 5 that we are to submit ourselves to the teaching of our elders. In verse 6, we're taught to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7, cast all our care upon him. In verse 8, we're called to be sober, to be vigilant. In verses 8 through 9, to resist the devil in faith. We're told in Thessalonians to avoid or abstain from all appearances of evil. We can be established and settled and strengthened. But these things here, verses 5 through 9, that's part of the journey. That's part of the chastening. We have to learn to submit ourselves. We're not born that way. We have to learn to humble ourselves. My goodness, we're not born that way. We have to learn to cast all our care upon him. All our care. Your concerns over the next election, cast it upon the Lord. Do your diligence. Vote. Be what you're called to be. Do your research, but cast all your cares upon him. Because you do not have control over that. He does. We have to be sober and vigilant. The coward's way out is to act as the drunkard. To act like a vigilante. And how many movies do we see in a calendar year that tells us to take vengeance in our own hands? To relax a little bit. To get a little booze in our system so that we can breathe. Don't listen to that. That's the instruction of the world. Verse 8 calls for us to be sober and vigilant. Not be sober to be vigilant and not be vigilant to be sober, but be sober and vigilant. Would Christ Jesus call us to be something we can't be? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means I can do verse 5 through 9 that Simon Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 5. I can do that because Christ strengthens me. Saints, your, works, your work is not done. So often we preemptively cry out that we are done with something well before God has confirmed that he is done with us in that thing. The military tells their recruits in training that when their brain starts to relay that the body is close to finished, they've only given 10%. It's not a lie. Our brains are quitters. Our brains will tap out long before some of our bodies will. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So what does Paul tell the Corinthians? So run, that ye may obtain. He makes it so easy in just four little words. He doesn't even use big complicated words. Translated in the English here, so run, that ye may obtain. But what does our brain say? Only one is going to receive the prize. Only one of a multitude of people who have prepared for this race is actually going to go home with the grand prize. Why should I bother? Why should I try? And those who don't immediately run to quitting say, I'm just here to participate. I'm just proud of myself. I'm just happy that I came out here. But Paul says, so run. So run that ye may obtain. Instead of looking at it, there's only one prize and there's a lot of us. It only takes one of you to run to obtain. And if you have run to obtain and you don't obtain, you can still hold your head high because you did everything you could. Your best is good enough because Christ is he who strengthens you. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That's Paul's words. Every man that tries, every man that striveth for the mastery to be the best, 
is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. You are going to face temptations in this life to bury the weak. And if they're Christians, so be it. Bury the weak. Use their graves as a stepping stool of ascension for yourself. Oh, not us, preacher. Oh, yes, us. I've seen it in our sister churches. Perhaps we have it here. I don't know. But you're going to be tempted. But what's Paul say? I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. Paul says, I abstain from all appearances of evil. I don't know what Demas is doing. I don't know what led Demas away. I don't know about that John Mark guy, for a little while at least. But I myself have called this body unto subjection. I myself have trained this mind. I myself seek after a thus saith the Lord, and I will strive to honor and please him. And that's the best you can do, and you can do, and you can do. And there's no one here that has a right to speak to that. You are honoring God, first and foremost. The apostle compares himself to the racers and the combatants in the Isthmian games, well known by the Corinthians. He knew his audience. But in the Christian race, all may run so as to obtain. This is the greatest encouragement, therefore, to persevere with all our strength in this course. Those who ran in these games were kept to a very spare diet. They used themselves to hardships. They practiced the exercises to and beyond exhaustion. Those who pursue the interests of their souls must do com combat with fleshly lusts. The body must not be permitted to rule. Die unto thyself, bear thy cross, and follow after me. That was Jesus' response when they were asking, how can we be your disciple? How can we follow after you? You must mortify the flesh, Paul says. These are all confirmations of what we just read. The body must not be permitted to rule. Have you ever noticed how much more tired you are on Sundays when you get up? Then on Tuesday, Thursday, and then Friday, we just spring out of bed, right? It's the last work day of the week for most of us. But Sundays, oh, it's just, my back is stiff. Yeah, preachers go through it too. I'm tired. I ate too much the day before. I sat outside and talked too long with friends who came to visit. Whatever it might be, we've got all the excuses, but we can't let our flesh rule. We have to recognize the old man's influence over what the, uh, our Savior has redeemed. Romans 8.10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We are called in the Great Commission to press on for the kingdom. I want to close with an example. And I apologize, over the last three years I haven't given as many of these as I, I typically would like to. Uh, I feel like it gives us a good place to connect with the message. But some may have heard of a, a runner named Kip Kano. And he was the first world record holder out of Kenya for middle and long distance runners. He's mostly known by Americans for his rivalry with the American runner Jim Ruin as they met in countless Olympic games from 1967 to 1972. 
And in the summer of 1968, the games were held in Mexico City, and Jim and Kip were both competing in the 1,500-meter race. In this distance, Ruin was the overwhelming favorite due to his kick and distance sprinting ability. He was just crazy fast to watch. Ruin was the world record holder going into the race. So he's not only favorite, but he's already proven to the world he's the best at what they're about to compete at. Kip won this race by 20 meters. Kip, not Jim, won this race by 20 meters, the largest winning margin in the history of the event. Let me give you a little background going into this race. Here's what you should know about Kip. He was determined. He was running to obtain. He wasn't running just to have fun and compete. He was running to obtain. He was running to win. He had a humble spirit, and he put in a crazy amount of work every single day in his training to obtain. Leading up to the race, Kip had become very sick. He had severe issues with gallstones. The doctors advised him the day before the race not to run, that in the worst-case scenario, he would be jeopardizing his own life. The day of the race, Kip got up to go against their counsel and the bus got stuck in the Olympic traffic. 20 minutes from the sign-in deadline, he got off the bus and he sprinted the remaining distance to the race. And remember, this was race was in Mexico City, a very high altitude. Every step he ran was filled with searing pain. It was difficult. If you watch the race, you can literally see on his face agony, yet he kept running. He pressed on. He pursued. In an interview, he said he was running his own race. I ask you today, who's running yours? <laughs>